Hello, fellow Powderhounds, and welcome to the Powderhounds Podcast, a podcast about just having fun skiing and riding. I'm your host, Jeff Squaman Shaw. It is Sunday, July 5th, 2020, and we are recording live from Ridgevale Beach Studios to talk skiing and riding. Well, sort of. This episode dubbed Summer Fun on the Mountain. We'll explore the reopening of ski areas for summer mountain operations after shuttering winter ops in mid-March due to the pandemic. It is a welcome change for all outdoor enthusiasts. Pandemic or not, this is the time of year when we trade our skis and poles for a mountain bike and helmet. Better yet, swap that down jacket and snow boots for a bathing suit and flip-flops. Even if, say, mountain biking is not your thing, there is no shortage of stuff to do on the mountains during the summer. The inspiration for this episode was yet another pummeling of my email inbox from ski areas and lodges. Last Tuesday, between 5.30 and 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I received over a baker's dozen worth of emails from ski areas and lodges offering discounted rates, dining credits, and one-time specials. The timing was eerily similar to the 2020-2021 winter season ski pass email barrage of last month, though I quickly realized it had everything to do with the state reopening and the ability to welcome guests and visitors once again. So sit back, kick your feet up, relax, and enjoy the experience of everything skiing and riding, Patterhounds. Inside this episode... Just like last month's episode, I'll be working solo today to share ideas on fun things to do on the mountains this summer while following all public health and safety guidelines. Again, our ability to enjoy the mountains will largely depend on the trends and prevalence of new COVID infections over the following weeks and months. Please, please, please wear your mask and keep your distance, friends. While the heat of July and August may have you thinking about salty air, ocean waves, and lobster rolls, the mountains may be a good alternative to crowded beaches. Another reason to head to the mountains this summer, support mountain communities. Many ski resorts and the people that work there are still hurting from the sudden suspension of their main money season and seem to be rolling out the red carpet to attract summer guests. Now, admittedly, I'm a big fan of summer on the beach, specifically Cape Cod, having spent a couple decades growing up on those down Cape sandy shores. That said, It is nearly impossible to ignore the variety of recreational opportunities in the Northeast that do not include a sandy bottom. Hopefully this rundown of activities will help fill in a summer vacation or long weekend itinerary. Finally, I'll close with some thoughts on the upcoming 2020-2021 winter season. I've tried my best to keep up with the season pass deadlines, pricing changes, latest industry news, and updates from the Southern Hemisphere Experiment, where people are actually skiing and riding right now during the pandemic. It's a patchwork of information for sure, but a couple predictions will probably come true. But before we get into that, I'm going to share some, I don't know, I guess I'll say quick reflections on the pandemic in a new segment called Shutdown Survival Kit. It's more or less of a compilation of some of the outdoor and home-based activities I've done to remain healthy and safe over the last few months. So sit back and relax. Maybe you'll enjoy this. Maybe not. Here we go. (laughs) Things are obviously bad. The virus is still surging. Now in the South and West, well over 100,000 Americans have died and so many thousands more. 
And the vaccine available for ma the masses is not expected anytime soon. Couple that with massive unemployment and civil unrest, it's hard to be optimistic. Yet the summer travel, or in other words, vacation season, is heating up, yes, pun intended, even though many trips are likely a car ride away. With the MLB, NBA, and NHL seasons nearing, and the talk of reopening college and schools in the fall is becoming a daily debate at the kitchen table. Is this a good idea? Is this just going to lead to another surge? <sighs> well, this is also a time when hundreds of thousands, if not millions of essential workers are putting their lives and the lives of their families at risk. For those lucky of us to have a job, to work remotely, it does feel a little, well, awkward. Uh, though my friend Kate, wise beyond her years, comforted me when saying, hey, you're wearing a mask. You're socially distancing. You're treating this pandemic seriously. Jeff, you're doing your part. She's right and made me feel better. And I hope everyone continues to think and do the same things. It's also been interesting to see our daily routines form and, well, quickly evolve. As the virus was raging in the tri-state area, we, our family, did not leave the house for anything but groceries and doctor's appointments. Oh, and welcoming our baby boy into this world. <laughs> Indeed, working from home along with my wife on maternity leave has been an unanticipated blessing. Even as spread is seemingly under control in the Northeast, we remain extremely cautious. Now, during the spike, uh, like others, we stayed put. Our preparing meals were the excitement of our day, and the decline and rise of the quality of those meals based on the, well, decline and rise of food in our pantry. Walks around the neighborhood became the norm, and actually we've met more neighbors than we knew before the pandemic. So silver lining right there. We did experiment with grocery deliveries, but those quickly became not, well, a, a band-aid to, uh, to, 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 to a problem. And we did participate in the car parade, so at least we could check that box. Now, as the curve bended, things seemingly got better, started to feel a little bit more comfortable. Again, being outside, but socially distanced and wearing masks. I play golf. Now, I still leave the mask on to this day in July to prevent me from simply falling back into old habits. We've gone to the store, grocery, baby, restaurants. We do takeout. With reopening, there's more opportunities, but we still remain cautious. We are, however, doing outdoor visits with friends and families. The grandparents have met their grandson, been playing some tennis with some friends, and even doing the good old beach day that we all probably need. Interestingly, some regular hobbies that I dabbled in from time to time before the pandemic have now become, well, like religious commitments. Whether it's uh, watching comedies, well, that's self-explanatory why that might be in vogue, to documentaries, to Zoom, FaceTime, and GoToMeeting happy hours and check-ins, weekly, if not daily, uh, becoming a crossword king, the type of the mini crossword, thanks to the daily New York Times Daily, or the full crossword in any magazine or newspaper I come across. I'm actually reading the newspaper. I'm reading magazines and have burned through a good stack of books, mostly in the fiction category, although there have been some nonfiction reads that have helped me think about the next adventure. I've actually cribbed some notes that you could maybe call a daily journal. Uh, it started out tracking thoughts, fears, expectations for this 
world that we're in now. And it's kind of become more of a list of, uh, I don't know, funny moments and silver linings, which is probably a little comforting looking back. We've experimented with cocktail hour, post-work, pre-dinner. That's kind of a fun thing to do every now and then. We've rocked the individual exercise by exploring with foot, pedal, and paddle, rivers, trails, neighborhoods. We've done the board, card, and yard games to keep the pod going. Uh, well, kept it going. Though episodes one and two constantly remind me of the initial spirit of the show, really capturing the on mountain experience that hopefully we'll be able to get to uh, the upcoming ski and snow uh, snowboarding season. I've also channeled my high school creative writing skills and technique and pushed out a few, let's just say, creative writing pieces. Uh, the kind that could include funny thank you card notes for baby gifts from friends and family, the occasional letter to the editor, some poetry. I even might have wrote a children's book, which may sound weird if I wasn't a proud papa. Uh, at the same time, illustrations are kind of the bedrock of a children's book, and... I don't think I can draw. So we'll see where that goes. Now, uh, full-blown routine these days, I've started to realize that Monday is game night, whether it's card card or board variety. Every now and then, yard games will be mixed in, but that's more of a weekend thing, it seems. Uh, Tuesday is mini golf league night. Thank you, Matt, for getting me into that. Wednesday is trivia night at 830 as well as streaming concerts that usually start at 8. Thursday is actual real golf league night. And Friday is takeout and movie night. The weekend is a mix of paddling, biking, and picking up bagels curbside. So that's sort of the new routine. And uh, I don't know. I guess we'll see how the next weeks and months evolve. Now, I'm actually curious if I listen to this recording in a year, what life will be like. So consider this my time capsule moment. Anyway, hope you're hanging in there. Stay healthy and safe. Let's move on. Here we go. Summer fun at the mountains, Northeast edition. When thinking about summer activities in the mountains, the top two activities or options that probably come to mind have to be mountain biking and hiking. Or maybe just sitting outside in an Adirondack chair with the sun in your face, breeze on your neck, cold drink in your hand. Indeed, the winter alpine trail map transfers, in some degree, into a summer bike and or hike network. Pitch, lift service, difficulty, the rocks, trees, boulders, streams, kind, that's a fish game hinge reference, uh, determines what is open and accessible. So here are some ideas for summer fun on the mountains. Now, we'll start with mountain biking. An on-the-mountain activity. The word mountain is actually part of this activity. In my earlier years, I actually used to be a competitor in the Norba series, the National Off-Road Bikers Association, competing in weekend races, primarily in the southwestern portion of Connecticut. Cranberry Park in Norwalk comes to mind as the location for a few races. Now, the height of that uh, mountain biking racing career was a third-place finish in the Jack Rabbit race uh, somewhere in the 90s, of which the faded gray race t-shirt is still proudly in my possession. I only know that because I've been told multiple times to throw it out, and I have not. Of course, tra- of course trail riding, literal mountains, are on a whole nother level compared to the low land forest I just described in my own experience. Uh, And some of those 
actual mountain trails may require fat tire bikes. Something to be aware of. Now, most mountains have their own trail networks as well as bike parks, though a few are limiting their summer operations so they can actually focus on the upcoming winter season. Um, now, check out their summer trail maps for more information. Check out the websites just to be sure. But after poking around a little bit, I found a few places that sounded kind of fun for your next ride or adventure. I guess good marketing will do that. First up, Sugarloaf in Maine boasts 80 miles of trails through the Carabasset Valley. The mountain has a daily trail conditions report, similar to a snow report, and even a trail named Jabba the Hutt. Star Wars fans, come on. Bolton Valley in Vermont is doing a free Thursday evening enduro series, a 10-week program tracking weekly points for participants showing proof of participation. At the end of August, two people with the most points will be crowned the king and queen of Bolton Valley biking. How about that? Something to add to your resume. On my list, I, uh, I saw Kingdom Trails, a smaller version of per perhaps the long trail, but a hundred, nonetheless a 100-plus mile year-round non-motorized trail network for all ability levels in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont. Over land, uh, 90 landowners make it possible, including Burke Mountain, the single largest landowner on the network to allow folks to access this special area. So that might be something to check out off the beaten path for sure. On to hiking, another on mountain activity. Now I've done most of my hiking in Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Vermont. I do not consider or describe myself as a hiker, but I do enjoy getting out in the woods and on the trails. Of course, there are plenty of eye-popping trails in the lowlands of Connecticut, the already-mentioned Carabasset Valley in Maine, the Berkshires of Massachusetts, the White Mountains of New Hampshire, the Catskills of New York, see where I'm going, the Green Mountains of Vermont. Uh, we really, in the Northeast, are, are quite lucky to have this variety of natural resources not too far away. Now, the widely known long trail system uh, in Vermont is a 272-mile footpath consisting of over 160 miles of side trails and almost 70 backcountry campsites offering endless hiking opportunities. So you want to start somewhere, that might be a good place. There are trails for the day hiker, weekend overnighter, and extended backpacker. The long trail follows the main ridge of the Green Mountains from the Massachusetts to Vermont state line to the Canadian border, crossing some of Vermont's highest peaks in the process. Now, my Green Mountain hikes that come to mind are three, the first being in the south, the Mount Olga Trail of the Molly Stark Network off Route 9 in Wilmington. Now, this was a winter hike. We had snowshoes. It was actually a pretty good snowfall, so we had to do uh, probably more work than we anticipated, but we wound our way up to the fire tower on the top of the, on top of the mountain. Uh, and really, want the plan was to go to the top and take in the, the views. Uh, but after maybe 10 steps, starting to slide a little bit in winter conditions, we quickly realized that uh, it would not be safe to proceed. So we, uh, we turned back, didn't go up the icy staircase, but um, it's definitely on the list of places to go back to, and summer's a great time to do it. Now, there is limited parking at the trailhead, at least in the winter, so uh, always check uh, the local reports before you head out. To the north, Mount Mansfield, of course. That's probably one that would come to mind, the highest peak uh, of the Long Trail system and in, in Stowe. Now that experience was a bit of a roller coaster ride, I guess. It started out sunny on the bottom of the mountain and then the weather pr progressively got worse to the point where 
we did make it to the top, but uh, you were in a wind cloud funnel. It was bitterly cold, rain slapping your face, and we actually brought a, a mini dachshund, our, our dog, with us. And uh, let's just say that um, it was quite an experience. But, you know, we can say that, hey, a mini dachshund made it to the top of Mount Mansfield. Um, to the east was a uh, camping and trail experience at Mount Escutney. And that came to pass through the Ragnar Trail Vermont, one of the relay races that goes through the Northeast. In my time doing it, there was a monsoon that blew through overnight and made a mess of the trails and a mess of our campsite. But we finished the race and we got our cars out in the farmer's uh, lot uh, the next morning, which was really, really important because not a lot of other people were not that lucky. Sometimes it's just really important to have an all-wheel drive vehicle. Now, I haven't begun to scratch the surface when it comes to hiking, but you got to start somewhere. And there are plenty of places to go, even, quote-unquote, off the beaten path. Hiking pun totally intended. So get out there and hike. Moving on. Golf. As I mentioned, this is one of my activities in you know, in my survival, shutdown survival kit. Now, in off mountains, there's plenty of golf courses either on or just off the mountain or access road, usually in the base area. Now, I've had some of my best and worst rounds of golf in Vermont. Not surprisingly, spent a lot of time there. First that comes to mind is Equinox on the western, southwestern part of the state in Manchester, Vermont. My first time breaking 100 occurred, not in my home state, but in Vermont. However, at my buddy and hopefully upcoming guest Brian's wedding, I shot perhaps career worst, at least since I kept started keeping scores of my golf game, a career worst 119 on the morning of his big day. Uh, so that was kind of forgettable. But we had a great time that night, so congratulations, Brian and Bailey. <laughs> Uh, another one that comes to mind is the Okemo Valley Golf Club, more in central part of the state. And the most painful memory of that round was pre-golf, pre, pre being at the driving range and really unleashing some uh, fierce, fiercely straight and uh, deep uh, shots, indicating an accurate round was upcoming. Well, that was the case on the back nine. I shot a 44, which is, which is pretty good. Front nine, however... Not the case. Uh, we had the mid-60s, and I don't even want to utter the actual number because it's just unbelievable. Uh, but hey, you know what? That's the game of golf, and that keeps things interesting. On my list this year is to play Bellows Falls in the, again, the central part of the state, where my guests from the Aspen episode, The Bank Show, and Mr. Gans run that course and also provide a nice fishing experience to complement the golf. Hopefully, we'll get an opportunity to do that this summer. Also on my list, the Mount Washington Golf Course in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. Uh, my guest on the Haystack, or former Haystack episode, KP, is going to have to set that one up. So if you're listening, KP, let's pick, a, let's pick a weekend. On to rafting, the next activity. Now, this is definitely off-mountain. You need some, well, freshwater rivers, lakes, ponds to do some kind of, any kind of paddling opportunity, whether canoe, kayak, stand-up paddleboard, or raft. Now, I'm, well, I'm a stand-up paddleboarder, 
of those four options, uh, I will say rafting through the Crab Apple Whitewater Adventure Tour Company provides an exhilarating tour in Maine, Massachusetts, and Vermont. Last time I did this, we took the Eight Mile West River that parallels Route 30 in Vermont for the spring dam release. Let me tell you, watching, watching that gushing water pouring out of the dam while you're put put you know launching in in a in an inflatable raft with uh, with, a co- with only a couple other people is quite the intimidating moment but let me say exhilarating when you don't capsize and get flung off the uh raft now those uh the guides were great on our tour just make sure you ask for tuba that's tuba you'll get it when you get there Another activity, this one you might not think would be mentioned, but I think it's worth 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 it, is just plain old driving. Another activity you might not think much of, but you know what? Getting out of the house sometimes these days, that qualifies as an activity. This will get you to and from the mountain. Now, what comes to mind here is Route 100 in Vermont, unofficially, but I guess more or less officially by skiers and riders. The Route 100 is known as the Skiers Highway. It stretches 216 miles along the spine of the Green Mountains through almost three dozen classic Vermont villages and towns and has access to some of Vermont's most well-known ski resorts. Mount Snow, Killington, Okemo, Stowe, and Sugarbush are either on or nearby the road. For non-skiers and riders, there are popular stops along the route, the Vermont Country Store in Weston, the present Calvin Coolidge State Historic Site in Plymouth Notch, that's off Route 100A. Cold Hollow Cider Mill in Waterbury Center. Those apple cider donut holes are, well, they're just delicious and very hard to, to stop once you, once you get in there. Uh, and the Vermont Ski and Snowboard, Snowboard Museum in Stowe's Downtown Center. Another route, Route 112 in New Hampshire. The Can Camagus Highway, or the Kank, as I understand is the local reference. Uh, the just shy of 35-mile drive is a recognized national scenic byway offering travelers rich history and natural beauty in addition to being considered one of the best foliage viewing areas in the world. Let me just repeat that. In the world. The byway winds across the state through the heart of the scenic White Mountain National Forest. A number of scenic vistas are plotted along the way offering Views of the White Mountains, the Swift River, Lower Falls, and the Rocky Gorge. The area is obviously home to hiking, walking, ponds, natural wonders, and lots of wildlife, particularly moose. And in fact, sitting moose. Last time I drove through, came across, I don't know, about a dozen cars, all of which had their hazard lights on, pulled over on the side of the road. You know, it seemed like it wasn't an emergency, so I, being the curious person I am, pulled over, took a look. Sure enough, there's a just a moose just sitting in a in a in a fenced in area right next to the road just kind of hanging out staring at people not looking for any trouble everyone's from a safe distance but um you know just home to the sitting moose for what it's worth uh <laughs> now i've driven it through the fall and winter um and certainly stopped for a picture or two or a moose sighting along the way uh, but the Bear Notch Road access is closed during the winter, so just something to be aware of next season when you're driving through that, that area on that route. Another option, 
Going back to Stowe. I hate to even say this after episode two and all the fallout from the toll road debate, but the toll road is now an auto toll road, open to zigzagging your way in your car up and around the ridge to the summit. Once again, I, I, I firmly believe the debate is settled, but Greg, if you're listening, tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> again, episode two, if you have no idea what I'm talking about, uh, the Stowe episode. Uh, another option for driving, just getting out of the house. Uh, try upstate New York. Cruise up Route 9N, which follows the Hudson River from Saratoga Springs to the Lake Placid area and the Adirondack Mountains. Didn't even mention the Adirondack Mountains in my earlier comments. Now, I caught that area in peak foliage season and was absolutely blown away by the colors. Uh, we were actually doing a Ragnar Relay Adirondacks and had just an amazing experience sitting floating staring up at the mountains in the fall foliage while floating in million dollar beach part of lake george we also tested the capacity of a 500 pound trailer with coolers gear uh sleeping bags tents and later found out that our gear definitely was pushing the 750 uh, pound trailer uh, weight um but the trailer held, held, so you know what? Trailer estimates might be on the conservative side. I don't know. Uh, thank you, G, for uh, for doing that. G, who was actually a uh, guest on the Sunday River episode. Now, this may sound like a joke, but last uh, driving recommendation, but even just heading into the Berkshires from the Mass Pike, from the east, heading west, is a scenic tour in and of itself. There's 30 miles between exit two and three, in western Massachusetts, heading up to Tanglewood, Lennox, and Lee. Obviously, that's probably better to catch peak foliage, not necessarily in the summer. But hey, if you've got an afternoon to kill, you know what? Drive 60 miles to, to the Berkshires. All right, let's move on to the beaches. I know, way off the mountain. As I stated earlier, I'm a Cape Cod beach guy. But here are a few interesting picks for beaches in our mountain, well, our, our mountain states. Vermont, again, you're thinking forests, rivers, lakes, small town village centers, those charming covered bridges. Sure, they're there, but there's also beaches and they're nestled on the shores of those beautiful lakes with the mountain vistas that I described. Talking about the Adirondacks and that million dollar beach. One beach location that sounded perfect and remote was Maidstone State Park in Maidstone, part of the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont is located at the end of a six-mile dirt road and is one of the most remote of the state parks. Along with a highly touted beach area, this beach is, has, and the area has great trout and salmon fishing. Mr. Bank Show, Mr. Gans. In New Hampshire, I think of the seacoast beaches and one of which comes to mind is Hampton Beach, the site of that. Uh, the, actually a different Ragnar Relay, I forgot, that's a New Hampshire one. I've referenced three of those races in this episode so far. That's something. Anyway, the uh, beach is huge, white sand, soft white sand, though I did see that parking this summer is reduced about 50% capacity due to the pandemic, but it is an absolutely be beautiful beach, very, very walkable downtown area, as I recall, plenty of accommodations and things to do, certainly an outdoor dining and entertainment uh, capacity. So check that out. If you're in New Hampshire, 
Of course, you have to mention Maine and the southern coast there. While it's been a while since I've done the Maine beaches, I go straight to uh, my second favorite seaside town in Maine, Portland. But my buddy, Jim, swears by Old Orchard Beach in uh, the southern coast. Now, he's a great golfer, three-time fantasy football league champ, and all New York sports fan, so I think he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Other uh, beaches, I don't have to really go into any detail, but you got the Hamptons in New York on Long Island, you got the Finger Lakes in upstate New York, you got the Connecticut shoreline. Anyway, there's plenty of beaches for all of us. I hope you get out there. I hope you can find a place, and whether it's in your mountain states or on the coast. Now there's plenty of other activities to consider. Those are sort of my banner activities to, 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 to frame the episode, but there's some other cool stuff to do as well. There's camping, there's climbing walls and tours, there's disc golf, there's drive-in movies, there's fishing, there's horseback riding, there's mini golf, there's mountain slides, mountain coasters, giant swings, zip lines. There are scenic lift rides, there are water slides, there's plenty of outdoor food and drink, and the age-old picnic. So again, these are all opportunities that you will find in your northeast mountain towns, ski areas that are looking to attract summer visitors to help reboot their economy and help them in their own recovery. Encourage you to check them out when you're trying to plan your summer vacation and long weekend getaway to keep yourself sane. Now, let's shift back from the sand to the snow in the winter is coming segment. Absolutely a reference to the Game of Thrones community. Now I'll start with the Southern Hemisphere experiment that I mentioned earlier. For those that don't know, I'm sure everyone listening to a Powderhounds podcast does know that the Southern Hemisphere is still in the middle, well, towards the end, I suppose. But anyway, in the 2019-2020 ski and ride season, winter season. Queenstown, New Zealand. I'll start with a positive story <laughs> uh, or update. So Queenstown in New Zealand reportedly sold 10,000 lift tickets, the highest single day turnout in years. Now, the reason was a combination of factors. There was a delayed opening to the season due to the pandemic. There was a good snowfall in the area, and it happened to uh, when the passes went on sale, happened to coincide with holiday break. So demand was high. What resulted, not surprisingly, was long lines, no parking, and lots of crowds. Now, if you're paying attention to the pandemic, you might know that New Zealand has all but squashed the virus. Now, they are a small island country that I believe stopped entry into the country um, altogether, and, and it remains the case. So they have a bit of an advantage perhaps than other places. So they're able to you know, reopen their skiing and riding um, mountains. Now, Australia, on the other hand, close by to New Zealand, had a different experience, as I understand it. Falls Creek and Mount Hotham closed lifts after just one week due to nearby Melbourne's six-week shutdown due to a COVID surge. Now, Mount Bueller in Australia remained open, but there were concerns that, you know, folks would just flood to that place that would normally be going to the other mountains that closed. And that's a concern that I think uh, ski, ski areas in the, north, in the U.S. and uh, the, the North America also have. Now, Thread, Threadbow in Australia made some headlines last month 
with the biggest single day of sales ever had. And they are operating at 50% capacity maximum. And that's based on the government guidance, government guidance because the virus is, is still very much uh, uh, surging in, in Australia. But lift tickets for June, July, and most of August sold out within hours of going on sale in a virtual queue with 35,000 people. Interestingly, the queue is open to season pass and non-season pass holders, meaning even if you had purchased season pass long ago, you still needed to book your skiing days, you know, days you'd use your pass. So that created a bit of a problem for season ticket holders. Rival Mountain Persher did provide their season ticket holders preference in the queue and were able to access those, the, you know, those days that they wanted to ski or ride. And that'll that'll come up in my expectations for next season. So put a pin in that for now. What was unclear from my following of these stories was how many days one could actually book with or without a season pass. And what was the penalty for not showing up on that day? Especially if you had a season pass and you already paid for it. Was there a penalty if you just didn't show up on the day that you signed up to show up? I don't know. Um, So (laughs) details aside... You know, the surge in demand um, is, is certainly going to outweigh supply. I think that's sort of the lesson we can learn from the Southern Hemisphere experiment uh, at this point in time. Now, looking at next season, there uh, I did see the International World Cup racing season is scheduled to start in October on time in Austria, also hit hard uh, initially by the pandemic. So perhaps that's an encouraging sign. I'm not sure. But now I'm going to go into my expectations, and I'm going to call this the good, the bad, and the ugly. Here we go. So the good. Commitment to clean. Let's be honest. The glamorous idea of the quiet, comfortable ski lodge is a fallacy. It's a lie. Shoulder-to-shoulder crowds, gross bathrooms, stinky, stuffy, aired lodges. They're the norm rather than the exception. And hey, it's not the ski resort's fault. Thousands of people getting hungry at the same time, you know, can't be avoided. But those ads touting the non-skiing parent, usually a mom, reading a book nestled next to a fireplace without a person, ski jacket or boot bag in sight, and a cup of hot chocolate or a glass of wine by our side should be outlawed. Stop teasing us. That doesn't exist. That's not true. (laughs) At least I haven't seen it. And I've skied for a long time. So that's the first good thing, the commitment to clean, sanitizing, cleaning supplies, will hand sanitizer, that should all be readily available and um, will hopefully be used by folks going in and out of the mountain and the ski area services. Second good thing, the tea time reservation systems. Now this was tried at Mount Baldy in California in April. Under very limited access, I think just 10% uh, capacity. But it seemed to work well from what I understand. Just the concept of tea time reservations would bring more order, but it's hard to see it working on a scale of a mega resort that has thousands of skiers on a normal day. Uh, but you know what? Maybe they, maybe it can be done. Uh, my question is, assuming that skiing riding capacity is reduced, and it's a sure bet it will be, uh, 
and a reservation system, a tea time reservation system, or even a lottery system becomes the norm. You know, will the booking be by group or by skier? You know, I'd have to imagine it has to be done by group or family units and friend groups are going to be separated and they won't be able to ski for a season. Guest services are certainly going to hear a boatload about that. But, you know, that could be interesting. Will the resorts limit how many people in a group can book, just like a restaurant's limiting how many people can sit at a, at a table? I don't know, but it is a question I have on my mind. So those are good things. Again, in review, commitment to clean, tea time reservation systems. At least you'll know if you have the ability to ski that day. I think that's what the tea time reservation systems will bring. Rather than you just driving up to a resort, getting up in the morning if you're doing a day trip, getting to the resort, and then you find out, oh, you know what, we're sold out. Sorry, you know, try somewhere else or we'll see you next time. Now, the moving on, again, this segment is the good, bad, the ugly. The bad, restrictions on where you can go. Now, I'm talking about one-way mazes through the base lodges, through lift lines, parking lots, even bathrooms. Uh, what's what's going to happen on a you know sub-zero degree or high wind day when people are just you know trying to get out of the elements? You know what is the family experience going to be like? You know uh, I don't know this yet, but I will in a few years. You know mom, dad, I'm hungry. I have to go to the bathroom. I don't feel good. You know the family experience is going to be tested this season. Now we know that a lot of folks bring their you know, bag lunches and take up precious real estate in the lodges. I have to imagine the resorts are going to want to make sure there is plenty of clean space in a reduced capacity lodge for paying customers, not the rest of us who bring our snacks and our lunches. So will the sack lunch people just eat outside in the high winds, gray days and uh, cold temperatures? How's that going to work? Now for the ugly. Sorry to go down this road, but it is worth thinking about. Reduce mountain operations, period. Now, this is both capacity limits for public health reasons as well as employee reasons. I'm going to start with the employees. Now, there's been a recent White House order restricting temporary worker visas that determine how much of a, that may determine how much of a mountain can even open, even if it's a good snow season. Ski resorts depend on temporary workers, often students, on their summer break from the southern hemisphere we just talked about, to load lifts, serve food, fill and fill the gap of a limited labor market in rural mountain towns. If those jobs are not replaced, and trends show most Americans do not want part-time jobs, then the mountain capacity will have to be reduced, even further than, say, a 50% capacity <coughs> uh, reduction as government policy for uh, large outdoor gatherings. So I'm talking about peaks, you know, big lifts not opening, and secondary base areas perhaps not opening, just simply due to not enough employees to run those services. Something to think about. Now, <clears throat> perhaps more most uh, relevant in the context of the pandemic, public health. This is this this could be ugly. Even though skiing and riding occurs outdoors where transmission is less likely, it's still hard to imagine ski resorts operating at anything close to full capacity. Even 50% seems like a lot because of the sheer number of people and all those choke points or touch points where people come together and there's really no way to control it. Lodges, lift ticket windows, bathrooms, lift lines, the parking lot. Uh, when it comes to lift lines, you know, they're already especially long on the weekends. So they will likely say double, you know, 
in wait times if skiers and riders are only allowed to ride with people in their party. And that's something, again, that has been tried uh, in the U.S. before the, um, in a few mountains that were able to reopen. So if you have a double wait time, this also means your number of rides down the rides on the lift and you know runs down the mountain will also be cut in half if you're waiting twice as long. Now, if you're buying a hundred dollar lift ticket at the window, no one's going to be happy if they're going to be maybe only getting in. I don't know six eight runs. Ugh. You know, and you know what if those other parts of the mountain, those base areas. Uh, don't open, then you're going to be just, you know, stuffing the same amount of skiers in, in a limited number of lift areas and trails to begin with. So, you know, the skiing experience really erodes quickly with that many maybe people with that much limited capacity. Now, when you talk about inside areas, the lodges predominantly, there's really no around way around it. At some point, everyone at a ski area will need to use the bathroom and will probably want to eat something. So, Lodges were probably going to become like mini mazes, you know, forcing the flow of traffic to pre-made food stations. Of course, the bathrooms, though, most that I know in ski lodges, you know, don't have you know, a lot of ventilation and even windows. And that's uh, certainly a concern that I'm sure uh, lodges are, are wrangling with. And of course, the access is the, is the main question of, of painting this bleak picture. You know, will the season pass holders get right of first refusal with, you know, their days that they want to ski the mountain? So does essentially a season pass now mean membership to that mountain? You know, what if a group of six, say, want to ski one day and three of them have that mountain season pass while the others have a mix of, say, awareness days, they're part of a ski club and happens to, you know, have that 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 day um that uh, destination that same day on their calendar. Someone else has a pre-purchased lift ticket they just you know bought before the season started. And then the other person, the sixth person, is just buying, a t- trying to buy a ticket at the window. You know, will they all be granted the same chance to ski that day? You know, sort of like a you know lottery together, <laughs> or you know, will each person reserve their spot separately? Which will certainly most certainly mean they won't all get access that same day. So, you know, really planning, you know, a weekend trip, let alone a destination trip where you have to hop on a plane, you know, seems to be risky depending on, you know, your pass situation. If you don't have a pass, it would seem like you're probably not going to be a priority. So that's just some quick expectations and thoughts on the upcoming season. Trying to be optimistic, and I'm going to segue into that by updating you on my season pass thoughts and reflections, I guess. That word seems to be good today. Um, as you may recall, last month, I spent just shy of one hour talking about eight different ski pass options for the Northeast skier and riders uh, for next season. Despite all that research, I still have not made any decision or purchase for next season. I'm pretty sure Icon lost me because with my discounted renewal price of $5.99 going bye-bye on June 17th due to my inaction, uh, I still have a $92 credit on an Epic Local for $6.30, which beats the not-discounted Icon renewal price of a base pass for $6.99, which would include less nearby mountains than Epic, and certainly the $40 difference between the Epic Local and the Northeast Value Pass is probably worth 
doing to keep a potential option for a trip out west if somehow we stop the virus New Zealand style. Uh, there are just more mountains on the epic local than uh, Northeast Value Pass. In fact, there's no West Mountains on <laughs> Destination Mountains on a uh, Value Pass. Uh, I'm also feeling a little excited about the Indy Pass, even though it's really not a season pass in the traditional sense. And no one I know uh, ski with regularly has even mentioned it to me without me prompting them about it. But for 200 bucks, for two ski days anytime at 12 mountains in the northeast with seven mountains within a two hour and 45 minute drive from my house and a simple credit refund policy if everything falls apart with the pandemic it's kind of becoming a no-brainer when you think of how much cash you might have to lay out for an icon epic uh super you know white mountain super pass whatever so that's sort of where I'm at, but the decision has not been made, but it will have to be made by the next episode I record because the deadline, I think, for Epic is September 1st, and Indie Pass sales go on sale September 1st. Final thought. So there you have it. Just a few ideas on spending part of your summer on the mountain as well as what to expect for the upcoming winter. But I'd like to hear from you. What did I leave out? What did I get wrong? What summer activities did I forget? What other thoughts do you have on the 2020-2021 winter season? Please be sure to share your thoughts, suggestions, and corrections on Twitter at PowderHoundSkis. As we switch to our Apre Ski segment, I'm just going to remind you all, as a friendly reminder, my other creative project, HappyCapeCod.com is a website dedicated to making the most of your time on Cape Cod. If you haven't checked it out, I have new posts on the comeback of the drive-in, theater, rail trail bike ride uh, tips, the uh, <laughs> review of the best soft serve ice cream, and cool breweries to do curbside and add to your next, next stop. We'll save you endless internet searches and often conflicting online reviews. Just go to happycapecod.com. Find us on Twitter at happycapecod for all your Cape Cod needs. So you can see why I like to go to the beach on Cape Cod. Anyway, that's it. I'm going to thank you, my listeners. I'm going to once again remind you to find us on Twitter at Powderhound Skis. Even better, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and Google Play. Just type Powderhounds Podcast. Until next time, see you on the slopes, Powderhounds. <laughs>